Let's talk about your soul. More, more than 30 years ago, began to recognize that that was probably one of the most effective ways to talk to people outside of faith. Uh, was just to begin a conversation, and I'd say, talk to me about your soul. And they'd go, what, what do you mean about my soul? And I said, that side of you where you never go. Just start talking, and we'll see where it ends up. Probably the best evangelistic approach I had 30 years ago, just to talk about the soul. It continues to be good. Um, and Rob, of course, has written a phenomenal book called Soul Care, Care of the Soul. And so we're going to talk about how do you deal with various aspects of the soul. A number of years ago, um, I, I had students uh, at seminary say to me, Martin, you talk about soul more than anybody I know. And I said, then you need different friends. You need to get out more. And they just said, we don't, it doesn't get talked about out there. And I said, it's, the Bible talks about it quite a lot. And so, of course, there's, I, in, the, in the Bible, there are seven different words used, particularly in Hebrew, uh, for soul, that we just translate them all the same, but they're various aspects of the soul. So let's take a look at the healing of the soul. If you're going to resolve issues of the soul, you have to start with identity. Identity is just the basis of who you are. There is your own perception of yourself and your identity. <laughs> Of course, we, ha we do talk about and we'll talk about how God sees you, the identity he has given you in him, but also part of living in this world and particularly our culture, there is a part of identity is always sexual identity. It's just obvious, but again, there's questions of identity uh, confusion, um, identity changes, etc. So let's just take a moment. The clinical terminology for this is, um, is simply called deprivations. Now let me just explain it to you, and then we'll put the pieces together. If you go to any larger bookstore around, and you should because we don't know how long they'll actually be in existence, so if you find one, go to it. But if you look at the section on parenting, particularly on children, you will have a large section of the cognitive development of children. You will have another very large section on the physiological development of children. You will have a very, very small section on the emotional development of children. And we have done very, very little teaching on how do you develop the emotional basis of a person, which is where so much of identity experience, relationships, all that comes from. They're basic building blocks. So physiologically, we know you have to have certain um, food groups, uh, vitamins, etc., to to move ahead physiologically. We know cognitively that you, there are certain things you have to learn before you can go to the next level. Well, the same is true emotionally. There are building blocks that if you do not get them, it's hard to go to the next level. Now, let's talk about what these are. There's sort of five 
primary uh, emotional deprivations that emerge in development. They're quite simple. The first one is simple security. A sense of identity, I'm okay to be in this family. Some of you remember somewhere along the line studying something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Need. And some of you are going, when will I ever use this? Today! Today is when you're finally going to go, I know, I, I know this is good, Maslow. He's the coolest guy on the planet. Well, not actually, but... I mean, his whole thing is the basic human need is just the, the safety factor. Now, when we look at the word that we have sort of summarized as abuse, it's an unfortunate word because it just so many things fit under the label. But with abuse, it's, it's not safe to be me in this place with these people in this environment. And so rather than this environment being supportive, strengthening, validating, building, it was robbing and detrimental and took things away from me. One of the earliest one of these I did, I simply said, picked up on it very quickly, and asked just before noon that for all of the women who felt like something had uh, been taken from them to stand and we would pray for them. There were very, very few women still seated. And uh, we went to break after that and immediately men and women both came up and said, do the same thing for men. And I said, I, I was planning on it, but this feels quite urgent. I framed it differently for men. And I just said, if you, as a boy, young man, felt like someone stole something from you that wasn't your, theirs to take, I want you to come, we're just going to pray over you as men to men. Two-thirds of all the men came. The men were louder and releasing theirs than the women. That's rare. We just went around and put hand right in the middle of guys' chests and they just lost it. It was really fascinating to me. It brought quite a healing in that church and beyond. Just simple safety and security. Uh, I would just add this one thing. Identity is like a foundation. So think of a building that you're trying to set in place. If the foundation of the building is not solid, no matter how good the building material, no matter how good the builder, the building is in jeopardy. You have to start with a solid foundation, and this is what identity is all about. Here's the good news. Even if you didn't get it, Jesus can give it to you. There is healing for the deprivations he's going to talk about in Christ, and we're going there. But just listen to the rest of the deprivations. We, we will actually mention books later, but my, one of my books on the power of mentoring is this whole aspect of when you did not get what you wanted, needed in your developmental phase of life. And it's one of the reasons why I've committed a life to mentoring, because if you can intersect in that moment, it's like it gives you this thing that you never quite got. The second deprivation is that of love. 
I mean, just think about the Bible. I mean, both Testaments, the greatest of the commandments, is about love. Loving God, heart, soul, mind, strength, loving one another. John, my little children love one another. Jesus, they will know you are my followers because of your great love for one another. It is foundational to your identity and who you are in the kingdom of heaven. It's love. But if you did not get what you either wanted or needed growing up in this sense of love, it creates this deprivation. And we'll talk about what this is like. It's a, it's a longing, it's a craving. It's like there's a sense, no matter how good this is, it always feels like something is missing. That's probably the greatest description of a deprivation. The third one is um, intimacy. Intimacy is a word that often gets uh, sexualized or, or it's used in sort of some really deep feeling thing. Let me just describe more than define intimacy for you. Intimacy is a sense of being understood and valued and welcomed simply for who you are. And connected. It's, it's the whole connection piece. It's like you belong. For those of you who like to be slightly cheesy, this is the wind beneath your wings. <laughs> no, seriously, when done in the context of relationship, it is this empowering thing. Like, it's a difference of wondering about yourself versus thinking, I can do this. Sure, I can do it. It's the empowerment versus wondering, is it possible? The fourth one is significance. Significance. And that's a do I matter piece. I wrote a book on family a long time ago. Before that, wrote a booklet on family that I think sold 60,000 copies. Um, it was just ridiculous. I had no idea. Gave it to my oldest daughter and asked her for feedback. And she didn't give any feedback. And after like six weeks, I called and said, it'd be kind of nice you don't give me feedback. And she goes, Dad, I don't know what to say. And I said, you read it and went, why are you talking about this? And she goes, exactly. I said, think about your friends. How many of them grew up with this sense of being validated, blessed, et cetera? She goes, ah. I said, see, it's normative for you. You grew up with it. If you didn't grow up with it, it's this craving. It's this longing. I've got a mentoring network right now that I've created, and I have several young PhDs in it who have hit so many of the benchmarks of their life. Um, all conference or all American college football players. Um, they've hit every mark, both women and men. Um, one had a PhD by 27 in a tenure track faculty position at a university the week before he turned 28 years old. That's a pretty good accomplishment. And he keeps saying, but nothing's ever enough. Yeah. Because I don't feel significant. And when you don't get these things, what ends up happening is you end up with an identity wound. Let me just give you two images. Okay, one, sometimes it feels like you have a hole in the bottom of your bucket. And it's like no matter what gets poured in, you can have an encounter with God. You can receive affirmation. You can receive love from people. It feels like it just drains right out. It never sticks. Or two, second image, 
It feels like your soul has a bit of a Teflon feel to it. Again, nothing sticks. People give you a compliment, it slides off. You have an experience with God, but it doesn't last. It slides off. You can connect with people, but it feels like you're still not really connected. It slides off. And it has this sense that I can't quite get what I want relationally with God and others. And often this is identity stuff. Which brings us to the, the fifth, the last one that we're going to talk about clinically, and that is the affirmation or validation piece. And why some of us long for and even crave affirmation or validation is because there's nothing for it to stick to. So you always need more because the security's not there, the love, the intimacy. So when you get it, it just sort of filters its way through and runs down. There's nothing for it to stick to. And so, I mean, we don't like the term, but some of us actually become affirmation junkies. Just tell me more. There are people who in their most loving relationship, their partner goes, there's no way I can tell you I love you enough. There's yeah. no way I can tell enough. I've got a couple, they've, they're now, I've worked with them for a long time, they're beginning to help me with some couples things. And so we asked this question on a scale of one to 10, how loved do you feel by me? And what would it take to raise that number? And one of the first times they did this together, he said to her, I would feel more loved by you if you would just learn to love yourself. Because I, 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 can't, I can't keep up with you. Nothing's ever, ever enough. And I give it my best shot. And I always know I fall short and it's never enough for you. There's nothing for it to stick to. We would be better if you could strengthen this piece of you. Now, here's how significant these are. Now, for those, those of you who are parents of children, relax. Because <laughs> you're thinking, oh, dear God, I have ruined them. <laughs> well, of course you have. Welcome to the human family. That's how it is in human families. But I will argue there's only two things that a child needs to have a really good shot at becoming a great adult. If you can give them this sense of security and a sense that they are loved, Big start. They've got a great shot at the rest of life. Take care of those two and so many of the others to fill in. Now, this is significant. When uh, we, my first teaching position was in Western Canada. Go straight till you hit Montana, turn right, and it's just up there. There's not much else. You can't miss it. It's up there. And the um, youngest daughter, Lauren, started uh, kindergarten up there. And um, kids were in French immersion. And so she wanted in, and we did. And, and if you stay through grade four, you're absolutely completely bilingual. We moved at the end of grade three. Now, Lauren has, is very bright. She used to remind me of that often be, because of what she felt. And I mean, she's, um, she's finished law school, passed the bar well the first time, did a year at Oxford Law. I mean, she, she really is. She's done well academically. But I would watch her in high school. And she'd be working on math, and she'd be going along, and she would stop. And her lips would move, and she'd go like this. And I said, Lauren, what are you doing? She'd be so frustrated. She goes, Dad, I am really smart. And I go, I, I know. I've just validated how this has moved ahead. But she goes, when I left... Canada, we were multiplying by threes. When we got to New York, they were multiplying by sevens. And she said, no matter what I have done, I cannot do fours, fives, and sixes. 
She goes, I've memorized, I've, I've done flash, I have done everything possible. And she looked at me and she goes, apparently if you don't learn multiplication tables in sequence, they're hard to pick up. And I thought, oh Lord, if multiplication tables are this big, what if you don't get some emotional stuff you need? No matter how hard you try, it's like, I, just, I feel like I keep missing this. Hence the reason why clinicians call these deprivations. You're deprived of it. Yeah, and sometimes what happens is people, people you know, they, they have a lot of good stories to tell about their family, but then there's one traumatic event. And you need to know sometimes that one traumatic event sticks. And you have to go back and get some healing on that stuff to begin to move forward. It's amazing to me how people assimilate things from their childhood that carry over into their adult years without any connection in their mind between the two. And it happens all the time. Jen, my wife, played a game with my kid when she was little, and then we brought it back to play when she became in her 20s. So here was the thing she did. For whatever reason, my wife is slightly twisted, and so you just have to know that about her. But she, she called and this one... And you married her. I know. Yeah. And I love her for it. And she has this, this one true. color that she would color, you know, crayon, and we called the color Gracie, okay? Just when she was three or four. And never talked to her about it again all through her years. When she was 20, one day I called her. She's in college. I said to her, Danielle, and the color, by the way, was a green-yellow sort of blend. I call her one day in college. I said to her, Danielle, what color is Gracie? That was all I said. And she goes, it's yellow-green. How do I know that? Now, we did this to her when she was three or four, and I didn't check with her again until she was 20. Now, hear me for a second. If you can pick that up at three or four, and that gets sealed inside of you, can you imagine what trauma does to you? This is why so often you are reacting to things without knowledge because of something that's happened that you've never redeemed. And this is why sometimes you've got to go backwards to move forward. We'll just frame a couple more things and then move ahead to the good news. What do you do with this? You're going, okay, you've, you're describing part of my life, part of my identity, part of why I feel stuck. Okay, keep describing it, but I, is there any hope for me? There's plenty of hope for you. Okay. I'll tell you my own story, because mine, mine really fits into the intimacy deprivation. I, I grew up in a really fun family until I was 10. Family had a lot of laughter, and uh, I was the youngest of four children, and according to my mother, I was the brightest and best looking. And uh, no, seriously, you should see the rest of them. It's, yeah. And they know I say this and nobody disagrees, so that tells you something. They do roll their eyes, however. But at 10, our family changed dramatically. We lived, uh, this rural area lived next door down the road from grandfather, and, and he passed away suddenly. But come on, grandparents die. That's just how it is. And then not long after that, my oldest brother was 20. He was the oldest. I was the youngest. I was 10. And he had a tragic car accident and was killed three days before Christmas. He was responsible for the lot of the laughter in our home. And the laughter died. It was Christmas. A couple years later, my next brother got sent to Vietnam, drafted in the Marine Corps, sent to Vietnam. Of the nine guys who went over together, only two came home alive. 
So we were always waiting for the call. He did come home. But because of all that happened, he came home as a hopeless alcoholic. While he was in Vietnam, my sister went a thousand miles away to college, and so was my mom and dad and me. My dad traveled a lot. And then without warning, he was 49 years old. I had just turned 15. He just died overnight of a heart attack. And it was my mom and me. She was 44 and widowed. She didn't cope. Now, what do 15-year-old boys need? <laughs> Everything. And there was just nothing there. Nothing. A couple miles outside of town, on a gravel road, three houses in two miles. There was nobody around. It was painful. I think that's why a lot of my early life went the way it did. Um... I think it's why I got married so young. I think it's why when I came to faith as a 20-year-old, I think I finally got the father that I'd lost. So it was, I was all in. And this went well until late 20s. And Diana said to me one day, Martin, I can't do this anymore. I said, do what? And she goes, I feel like I got five kids instead of four. She goes, feels like you got stuck back there someplace. And I said, but I'm fun. <laughs> she goes, it's not funny anymore. I need a husband. I don't need another kid. I said, well, this is pretty serious. I've got to figure out what to do with So I had a couple good mentors. I was working on a doctoral program, so the university had counseling, so I took full advantage and figured out hole in the soul, intimacy deprivation. And set about to fill that with uh, good human relationships and God. And um, when I tell this story, various places around the world, people come up to me and go, you know, you really only had two choices. You can either heal this and do what you do, help develop other people, or you'd be yeah. on the Jerry Springer show. I know. I know. One, one final one. I, I just want to throw this in. You know, he mentioned human relationships and God, and I just want to say this. When you've been wounded in community, and his community wasn't wounding him because they were cruel, they were wounding him because they died. But when you've been wounded in community, you cannot be healed alone with God. You have to re-engage in community. And for some of you, you've been wounded in community because people have betrayed you and hurt you. And you want to heal alone with God, and I need to tell you, you will never find full healing alone in Christ because He is a triune God, and He has called you into community. He is community by Himself, and you will never embrace full healing until you re-embrace community. It is part of the healing path for you, as it was for Him. It's a good word. I was living in Canada. Uh, I don't know why, but as long as I have been doing any kind of ministry, every pervert, every place, talks to me. I can't imagine why. And they all say the same thing. They come up and go, I just knew you would understand. <laughs> I'm, always, I'm always looking, going, is there, like, is there a shirt under there that's got a, like a pee on it or something? <laughs> they all say Scarlet. the same thing. 
So sure enough, I mean, I just moved to Canada, and every pastor who had every odd person sent them to me. So I, uh, I got a young couple sent to me. They, they, were, they were fascinating to me. Uh, I think they were 24. He was a strapping lad, 6'4", probably 220. Great-looking couple. She had modelish good looks, probably 5'9 or 10, and looked great. And uh, the pastor had done their wedding like seven months before. And um, she came home. And on the days before you could find anything on the Internet, there was no Internet, she came home and caught him with porn. And she was just devastated. They'd only been married a few months. And so they went to see their pastor, and he had no idea what to do, so they sent him to me. So I sat with him for a little bit, and I said to her, why don't you go get a cup of coffee? Let me talk to him. Well, she was so excited. She, like, sprinted out of there. I was going to fix her man. And so she just left, and I said to him, your issue's not porn. He goes, what do you mean my issue's not porn? I got caught with porn. I said, you got caught with porn because you're stupid. But your issue's not porn. So how do you know that? And I said, stick with me. I know a lot. I said, as a... Like as when she's away at work in your home, if, if there's no porn, you, you look at her women's magazines, don't you? He goes, how do you know that? And I said, stick with me, I know a lot. And I said, when you were growing up at home, your mom probably had catalogs back then, right? Yeah. I said, you'd look at your mom's catalogs, didn't you? Yeah. So what did you look at? I said, you, you looked at women in the underwear, right? Yeah. I said, see, it's not about clothes or no clothes. You're looking at women. I said, now, tell me about your mom. I got really defensive. What, what do you mean about my mom? I said, tell me about your mom. He took a deep breath and he goes, my mom was 37 and a half years old. She'd never been pregnant in her life. They decided to adopt and they adopted me. He said, they had me for seven months and my mom got pregnant for the first time in her life and carried the child to term. And she had the daughter she always wanted. Yep. So now, remember this one. What's the phrase you remember most growing up? I said to him, if you don't remember a phrase, what was the look or what was the noise? There's always a phrase, a look, or a noise. And he just put his head down and said, come on. You're 6'4", 220. I can still thrash you. But give it to me. Tell me about the boy. He said, I was four years old. I remember my mom looking at me, and she was frustrated. And she said to me, will you get out of here? I don't even want to look at you. I said to him, when you look at porn or catalogs or women's magazines or whatever it is, what part of the woman do you look at? He put his head down and said, no, no shame, buddy. Come on, what do you look at? He said, you won't believe me. And I said, but I will. He said, I look at their eyes. I said, of course you do. So you're not interested in porn. Although you're 24 and 6'4", you're a four-year-old boy who just wants his mom to look at him like he matters.
if we took time to listen to each of your narratives. There's parallels. So there is a way to address this, to bring a wholeness and a health. You go, tell me more, tell me more. Here we go. Let's deal with father, mother, family wounds. By the way, for those of you who are single parents or came from single parent families, um, this is not, um, if you didn't have one parent or the other, it's not that's the issue. It's these are the contributions that families make. And so siblings and families play a big role in this. So let's discover why are you the way you are. The people who love you most want you to get this because they're going, why are you this way? You go, I don't know. And they go, I hope you can get fixed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I use that term because so many times I, a, a couple makes an appointment with me and he shows up by himself. I go, why are you here? And he puts his head down and he goes, she sent me to get fixed. I said, okay, uh, just for the record, we do the same thing when we take a male dog to the veterinary clinic. Um, I'm not that kind of doctor, so we're gonna fix you in a different way, mate. So why are you the way you are? Well, we've already talked about identity and image and deprivations. Let's figure out the range of emotion, because for some of us, if we just put it on a random 10-point scale, we're functioning at about, at about a two-point scale, and the Spirit of God's going, come on, I want you to get this. I want you to know the depths of my love, and I want you to know the celebration of you as my child. So let's, let's take it down and let's take it up. Let's take your two-point range in the middle, and let's stretch this to a six or an eight-pointer. Oh, it's party time soon. It just got, it came up in a strange order. What are some additional factors, fears, We've already talked traumas, childhood issues. We'll talk about decisions you've made and character issues, unresolved things, etc. Let me talk for just a minute about fears. Fears are so interesting to me. I'm not a fear-based person. As a matter of fact, it took me the longest time to access this. I figured out, you've, some of you have already picked up, and some of you who knew my son Bo go, oh, that's where he got all this stuff. Um, but I'm not a fear-based person. I've, just recently, I said, I, I had to work hard. I actually thought it was a character issue because I kind of don't have the ability to feel guilty. I'm not hardwired for worry, and I seemingly don't have fears. Now, that's just not fair on this planet. But that doesn't mean I don't have other issues. It's just those aren't mine. And for some of you, those are the three that dominate you. Now, fears are interesting. We were sitting there, so this would have been now uh, more than 10 years ago, and it was at Thanksgiving, and um, Diana just said out of the blue, it wasn't like a, a talk of, I'm thankful for this. She just went, you know, one of the things I'm most thankful for is that I didn't pass on any of my fears to you kids. And the, in unison, they all burst into laughter. And they go, Mom, are you serious? And she goes, you... You don't have the fears I have. And there was this long pause, and, and then one of them spoke and said, because we saw how much it paralyzed you, and we've each created our own self-talk. 
so that we don't give in to fears. And she pointed to our oldest daughter, Amy. She goes, Amy, look, you, you've, um, you're on homeless shelters in Philadelphia. I mean, you, you work with the police. You've been arrested for blocking the police when they want to tear down homeless structures. And she goes, you're fearless. And she goes, because I choose to be. She goes, you have no idea the self-talk I create to get there. And then she turned to Bo and she goes, Bo, you're a wild man. And he said, because I do it with a flair. He had just gone through the Aero Leadership Program. And one of the things they had to do was repel a 100-foot cliff. And they said, here's what you don't do. Do not run. Don't jump out. And especially if you're larger, go over carefully. Let's make sure the rope will hold. Um, Bo was um, probably 25 pounds over the load limit. He volunteered to go first, grabs the rope, runs, jumps out as far as he can, lets out this scream, flips upside down, and goes down hands first. It's called Aussie style. They suggested not doing that. Everything they suggested to not do, he did. She goes, well, you're a wild man. He said, because if I didn't go first, and I let the voices in my head run, I would waste so much energy and probably try to talk myself out of it. And I thought, no, I'm gonna go first, I'm gonna do it with a flare, and I'm gonna do this, face it. This family talk was so intriguing because Diana gave in to hers, took her till she was 50 to overcome most of them, now, thank God she faced him at 50. But the kids saw and said, we're going to create different voices in our head to overcome them. So this is simply, what role have fears played in your life? What do they play? Traumas, we, we don't need to go there. You know what some of them are. Mine was death of all the men that I loved. I lost them. No fun. No fault of their own. There's no way to blame it just, it just happened. Childhood issues, there's all sorts of them. Character issues are the decisions you've made or refused to make. The irresponsibility factor, Rob talked about it last night. We have to deal with people often. There's nobody to blame. It was their, it was their fault. They just didn't make the decisions when they needed to be made. They let things happen. They weren't courageous. Let me give you two analogies. Here's the question. What do you do with these things? Since you asked the question, I have a PowerPoint slide for you. 31 years as a grad school professor. I always have a PowerPoint slide ready for you. Some of you remember file systems before there were computers. Remember big file folders and yeah. You had to clean them out because they just kept growing. They got out of control. As a matter of fact, three years ago, my young staff said to me, over the summer, we're, gonna, we're just gonna throw away all your files. I said, no, there's treasures in there. So we went through, there was just ridiculous stuff. I actually had one folder that said contemporary trends and the lead article was from 88. <laughs> that's just sad. I don't care who you are, that's just sad. So what you had to do though is pull it out, look at stuff and decide, do I keep it? Is it any good? Do I put it back in? You have to decide, but you pull everything out. Here's an analogy that's probably more productive for most of you. Some of you have young adult children 
and they still have a room, a closet, a corner of the basement, a part of a garage. It's their stuff, their junk. You've tolerated it far too long, and you say, come get your stuff. Now, some of you are the young adults, and over the holidays, one family member is going to say, hey, I need my garage, come get your stuff. Let's use the closet analogy. They go, it's time to clean out your stuff. It's been in there forever. Let's take care of it. So you, 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 you set aside two hours. You think, I can cover this in two hours. And so you get two hours, you usually get somebody to help you, and you open the door. And it's like an avalanche. It starts to fall out. And you go, why did I keep all this stuff? What is this stuff anyway? And there's all sorts of stuff. Now, everybody makes three piles. There's always three piles. Stuff I'm going to keep, things I'm going to throw away, things I can't decide. And the things I can't decide pile just keeps growing. The things I'm going to throw out pile usually doesn't grow as fast. So you look at these things. There's a stuffed animal there. It's just nasty. I mean, the ears folded over, one eye's hanging out. If we sent it away um, to get a bacteria count on this, I mean, seriously, they would destroy it. It, it, things should not be allowed to exist. There's a blanket in there. I mean, the germ level on this thing's ridiculous. There's clothes in there you haven't fit in for years. And if you could now, they would just look strange. Every guy's got a ball that has not had air in it for years. And most every guy has a ball glove that's not had a ball in it forever. That ball glove is folded over on the bottom. I mean, the thumb's over this way, it's twisted this way. You won't be able to use it till you have your first stroke. <laughs> oh, that's a little mean. I'll, I'll, I'll pray about that one later. There's all sorts of stuff. Here's what it is. It's the stories, the memories, the narrative of your life. And the memories that went with it. This is what God today is going to ask you to do with your emotional and soul issues. Let's pull them out. What do I do with that memory? Do I keep it? Do I redeem it? Do I forgive and release and let it go? Do I need a little more time to process it? It's the narrative of your life. Nobody escapes without scars. You just don't. They're part of growing up. They're part of the human experience. Unfortunately, some have too many. And that's why we do things like this, to bring a release to some of those. The question is, how big is the hole in your soul? Let me help you describe it. How big is the hole? Well, for some of us, it's just annoying. You're aware of it. You can label it. It's one of the five deprivations. You know what it is. It's a memory. It's an experience. It's a, it's a thought. It's a value you've assigned to yourself or about yourself to somebody else. But it's just annoying. It comes up more than you want it to, but it doesn't ruin your life. It's just annoying that you have to address it. We hear it all the time. It's just annoying. But for some, it's bigger. 
It's this nagging thing. It's, it's like no matter how good you think you're getting, there's this voice that goes, eh, but you remember this, don't you? Sometimes it's your own voice. Sometimes it's the voice of a sibling, a family member, somebody on the playground. Sometimes it's the voice of the enemy of your soul. Yeah, don't get too excited. Don't get too excited, the voice says. You'll just go back to the old pattern. And for some of you, it's like they go, you loser. You've heard the voice, some of you, haven't you? Yep. Yep. It's sort of like, do you remember just south of here, it's a Boston spa a few years ago. They, they actually, instead of uh, off at the exit, instead of putting lights in, they put roundabouts. You all were scary when I came up here. Because people in upstate don't have roundabouts. They have stop signs and they have lights. You don't put roundabouts in. People don't know what to do with those. And very nice people um, were using the sign of universal disapproval at each other regularly and uh, honking. And I'm going, these are nice upstate people. Why are they honking each other? Because of how they were driving. It's like when you first start to drive a roundabout. I mean, I remember when I first started going to countries and driving where they had them. I could negotiate them. But you have to think about it because it's this hole right in the middle. It's an actual hole. You can get around to the other side, but it's different. You have to negotiate. It's not automatic at all. You have to negotiate it. And the third one, of course, is the gnawing one. That no matter how much you address it, as people of spirit, you'll fast, you'll pray, You'll get other people to pray with you. Be slightly better. And it just feels like this giant sinkhole. Everything that gets close gets sucked in and is lost forever. You'll be, on, you'll be on top of the world. And it only takes one trigger. And the hopelessness just overcomes you again. You know the story, don't you? Some of you know that. It's a pattern of your life. So what do you do with it? Let me give you just three simple approaches, not steps, but approaches. Rob's already started to talk about it. Number one, you identify every human resource possible. Every human resource possible. Now, when I first started doing this, oh, well-intentioned church people pushed back really hard, and they go, why don't you start with God? Because if you start with God, and it's not enough, and the enemy of your soul will make sure that you feel like it's not, where do you go after that? No, start with the human stuff. Again, it's in community. So many of our challenges came in community. The healing's going to come in community. It's true. I heard it long before Diana passed, but at her memorial service, um, Rob was... Rob was the shepherd of her soul at the end. It was great. And he spoke. And so did John Torres, who had been her pastor for a decade. We had people come from, I was told later, 17 states and seven countries. We didn't even, people showed up, didn't even let us know. A physician flew in from Nigeria. People said, oh, it's so great that you could be in the country and come to this. He goes, 
No, I flew in for this. It was our marriage and family's different because of Diane and Martin. At the end of that service and the days afterwards, people just kept saying, Martin, you probably have the best friends of anybody we've ever seen. There's reason for that. Invest in them. Because I lost so much, I need the community. That's why I have the best friends that anybody knows. It's necessary for my soul and my well-being. So start with everything human. Long time ago and up till the end, young women used to say to Diana, how do you handle Martin being so affectionate with people? And she'd go, people or women? Mm-hmm. And they'd go, well, women. And she goes, okay, look. He's proven himself trustworthy, number one. Number two, he takes care of me very well, makes sure all I'm secure and everything's good. And she said, because of the loss that he experienced when he was young, this appears to be good for him. And then she said, besides, it saves wear and tear on me. (laughs) She was very functional, very functional. Those great human connections get the best of what you have. But you have to trust again to do it. Yeah. It requires you to do that. Second one then is you go to God deeply. Deeply. This is not a quick prayer. This is where the spiritual disciplines of fasting and praying and entering in of silence and solitude and drawing near to him. He becomes the actual father of your soul. He's not just the great God of the universe. He's that. But he's the actual father of your soul. And just two things I'd throw in on this. There's two resources that God has for you to help you through this. The first is truth, but that one you have to participate in. You have to renew your mind. Jesus said in John 8, 32, and we always quote just the second half, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But that's actually not what he taught. What he actually taught was, if you hold to my teaching, then you will be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We have to hold on to the truth exactly when we're trying to navigate around the hole. You have to hold on to the truth when you feel the fear and the pain of abandonment. You have to hold on to the truth when the lies are vying for position at the center. And unless you hold on to the truth, you'll never get around it. And the second is we need the presence and power of God. Listen, you have holes in your soul that only God can close. And you need his presence, not a theology about his power and presence. You need the revelation of his power and presence. And you go after him till he delivers. And it will always take a little longer than you wish. One day longer than a lifetime to yeah. get completely well. And then the third and final step in this process is then you make responsible adult decisions. You have to quit playing the role of the victim. We live in a culture of blame. This is you take responsibility for your life, your heart, your soul. Yeah, a lot of this happened at the hands of somebody else, but you can't blame them any longer. You take responsibility for yourself. 
and you make responsible adult decisions. I woke up to a text from a f talented female leader on the other side of the planet. And in the last conversation, I coached her through. I, uh, I just said to her, feels like there's a little something off in your soul. What's going on there? And she said, not sleeping well, hormones. And then she started and I said, I, I, I get hormones. Mm -hmm. Yep, I, I understand. I, I can listen if you, want, if you want to talk it through. Sure. She said, uh, you're up in the middle of the night? And she goes, yeah, for hours. And I said, what do you do when you're up? And she goes, I'm wasting time reading novels. And I said, interesting ones, trashy ones, or lusty ones? And she goes, trashy and lusty. Said, okay, you're smart. There's no sense in me telling you anything, but it's not going to get you where you want to go. And it's not in keeping with who you are as a person. So do you, you, you know why you're reading them, right? She said, I'm in my 50s. Marriage isn't as good as I wish it was. She said, you got a label for it? And she goes, yeah, I never thought about it to this conversation. I'm craving intimacy and connection. Of course you are. We don't need accountability. We don't need, um, you don't need coaching point. These are conversations. If he's not going to initiate, take your husband, dinner, drink. You got a convertible? Take him for a fun drive, go too fast, scare him a little, he'll listen better. <laughs> and then have the conversations. She goes, it's really good ideas. And I said, I think I've got talent here. <laughs> now, that's a female one. Let me give you another one. I happened to mention one time I was uh, living in Canada, early 30s, and I just happened to mention speaking one time um, that classic men's accountability things, I, I just didn't like them because most of the time, men either lied to each other, not here, but in other places they do. <laughs> and um, I said, typically when they do accountability, it means I just tell you afterwards, but you, you still screw up and do stupid stuff. You just admit it later. I said, I, I don't like those. I actually want to be a man of holiness. I really do. I don't want to admit when I've messed up. I said, I'd love to create a bunch of guys that we actually treat each other like we're addicts, and before we make stupid and inappropriate choices, we call each other first. I just gave us an illustration in passing. And afterwards, I probably had 50 or 60 men and another 30 women wanting to sign their men up. And I said, there is no group. I just mentioned it. <laughs> this is not a network I want to create, Pervs Anonymous. Um, so we decided there were a bunch of guys. What I found interesting, I was the clear, clearly far and away the youngest, and they put me in charge. And I was the mayor of the city, and the president of the university, and the dean of one of the grad schools. It was interesting who signed up for this. Then there was a young businessman who'd grown up as a missionary kid, was terribly abused sexually when he was young, and his attraction was towards children, although he was a father himself. We didn't know this till later. 
I'm going to take time to tell you the story because it's so profound. When we talk about responsible adult decisions, I want to frame one of these for you. We decided that we had, this was before cell phones, that we were going to give each other numbers and you could call any hour of the day or night. And so one night, it's almost midnight. Unfortunately, I went to bed early that night and the phone happened to be on Diana's side of the bed. Phone rang. And it was the mayor of the city. He was very embarrassed. And he said to Diana, can I, uh, can I please speak to Martin? She was not happy. And with no exaggeration, she takes the phone and goes like this. And she goes, it's one of your pervert friends. <laughs> cold, cold woman. <laughs> and I said... He's not a pervert. He's a good guy who's gone through a tough time and he wants to be a man of holiness tomorrow and I'm going to be there with him and for him. And here's what he said. Martin, it's 11 minutes till 12. I'm on the last street of the city. I'm standing outside of a video store. They close in 11 minutes. Will you keep me on the phone for 11 minutes so I can go home without taking a video with me? Now, it was cold, and he was at a payphone outside. You could hear the shivering in his voice. I thought I was giving insights. It was great. I wasn't looking at the clock. I was just trying to keep him on the phone. And he goes, he interrupted me in the middle of one of my great insights, and he goes, I just heard the door click, and the lights are going off. Thanks. And he hung up on me. called me the first thing in the morning as soon as I got to my office and he said, Mark, for the first time in my life I have courage and strength as a man of holiness. I'm because of what you did for me last night. I can be a man today who holds my head high and I have strength and hope and courage. I got one right. Come on. Who doesn't want friends like that? Here's the other one. I mentioned there was a guy who had unpleasant thoughts about children. We decided as a group we needed to be with him and for him. I had the most flexibility in my schedule than the rest of the people, so it was voted that if he traveled, and he had to for his job, if he ever got to a place where the temptation was strong, that he would call me. And I would jump on the very next plane to wherever he was, and the group would just chip in the money and cover the cost of the flight. And I got a call. He'd gone out to Vancouver, British Columbia. It was in the morning. And he said, uh, Martin, I am sitting outside of an elementary school playground. I'm watching the children play, and I do not like how I'm feeling. So okay. I will be on the next plane. I ask uh, somebody in an office near me to look up flights. And I said, I can be there in three hours and 25 minutes. There's a flight leaving in, in like 21 minutes. If I walk out now, I can get on last minute. It was before security. It was the way it was. And uh, so I went and bought a ticket. Last minute, it was refundable. Very expensive. Called him from the airport, and he goes, I think I'm going to be OK. And I said, think's not good enough. And he said, I've already left the playground. I'm getting in my car, I'm driving to the airport, I'm coming home. 
I said, okay, I'm going back to my office. You call me every few minutes. And he got home. Now, the unfortunate thing in that time and in that place, the only treatment center for someone like this was in a prison. And he had to willingly go into treatment in a prison. And we went to see him all the time. He never hurt another child the rest of his life. Up, that was 27 years ago. Because he had friends like us. Do not, do not live in your head with pain and accusations and fear and regret. Clear? Thank God yours are not necessarily like these guys. Now, one of the great things about telling stories like this is a whole bunch of you are not afraid to come talk to me because you go, she's a perv. I do have people go, I, I'm afraid that people are looking at me because I'm talking to you. I said, oh, they are. <laughs> but they have other issues, so don't worry about them. <laughs> Let's uh, fast forward to the end. Let's talk about how do you rebuild this. We've taken you this far. What we would do in the middle is just talk about some of the contributions now, what we've discovered over the years is how many people um, have mother issues as much or more than father issues. That's sort of emerged in the last four or five years. And I think one of the reasons is very often because dads didn't step up, dads were absent, dads didn't step up, mom had to be both the nurturer and the disciplinarian. And so very often we've got people who have issues about mom that we never knew about before. But sometimes it's also um, siblings. It's family issues. Um, so they each sort of play the role. We don't, we're not going to take time to do this because we want to spend some time praying for you. But the sibling wounds are a tough one. The comparisons, sometimes families talk about it, sometimes it's just known. Certain cultures, there's always one who's picked, and it's clear to everybody. This is the favored one. With some students from one particular culture, we just, we just now ask, were you the favored one? And they go, yeah, but it wasn't fair. And I, like, I feel great guilt because I was the favored one. So everybody feels bad. Um, and what happens sometimes is there is abuse and no one talks about it. So that's why over the holidays, one of the conversations, if you want to have a healthy soul, is to begin to engage conversations about, let's talk about what our family was like when no one was looking. There's plenty of ways to get there, but to begin to bring things into the light. Let's take you to the end. You're not missing that much, I promise. How do you rebuild these foundations? Since you asked, we talked about the holes and the soul, and here's the three ways you address it. Now, how do you rebuild it? Biblical truths. Notice the S. This is not read your Bible and pray more, which is very often what we're told, as if somehow the truth of God will do it. No, it's the truths. 
First chapters of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, for example, are about your identity in Christ. It's just simply who you are in Christ. Read those, reread those until they just make sense to you. In each of the first chapters of Philippians, or Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, there's a very specific prayer there. Paul doesn't tell them to pray more. None of the phrases we use, but he says, here's what I pray for you. And it's heart and soul stuff, that your love may abound more and more, that you'll have this deep connection with the Father, that he'll give you this stuff you didn't get before. It's really profound stuff. Take that full position in Christ, as we started last night, absolute confession. You can't keep junk in the suitcase of your soul. A occupies space, and very often it's toxic. So in trying to protect yourself or somebody else, it actually turns on you. And then the road analogy. Because of all my travels, I have spent far too much time in road construction. Sitting there, watching roads be built, reworked, etc. So I thought about it, sitting there for hours one time, and thought, I'm going to find a civil engineer, run some ideas past him, and see if this works. Because if it works in roads, it works in the soul. So there's a clear comparison. You don't build a road by taking either concrete and asphalt or asphalt and just putting it down on grass. You've got to dig down. You've got to dig down till you get to a solid base. It's identical to your soul. That's why we take so much time to do this. Dig down till you find that base. And then once you find it, you start to build it. So on the right-hand side is, this is road analogy, subgrade a solid base. Then we put in a coarse aggregate, which again is stone, but it, it fits into the big boulders. You've seen these giant road construction crushers with big spikes on them. They pack it down. And then comes fine aggregate stone, and that's where the big rollers come. And roll it out so it's smooth. And then rough grade finish. They'll put an asphalt down or something. You, they'll let you drive on it sometimes, but it's rough, and there's seams in it. You've driven on these, like at 30, 35, 40 miles an hour. It'll throw you. You'll hit one of the seams. It's like it's about to crack your neck. Your neck will fly over to the side. You can drive on it, but it's awkward. And then you're on one of those roads, and they finally put the top coat finish, and all of a sudden you drive on it, and where it was awkward going 30 earlier, now you find yourself going to 80 and go, this is fun. Same is true of your soul. Dig way down to a security base, who you are as a person, who you are as a woman or a man of strength, hope, courage, and faith. There's a human side. There's also a divine side. You are a daughter of the king. You are a son of the living God. No more excuses. You got to enter a no excuse zone. No more blaming your life becomes the sum total of the decisions you make or don't make. Then comes the trust factor. When I first started working with the Wall Street crowd a number of years ago, and since, I never talked to any of them about belief. They're cognitively astute people. 
Believing in God isn't the issue. Trusting him with their life's a big one. For every person here who's been hurt, you believe, but you protect yourself from the trust factors. This trust thing is foundational. Then it's the love. In the human condition, it's loving and being loved. It's best in an environment where it's secure and returned. But if not, sometimes you have to be the one to initiate. Then with that, you get the intimacy, that deep, deep connection. The one gives you courage and hope and strength. It's very empowering, both from humans and from God and his spirit. And then comes the affirmation, confirmation, and validation. Where you begin to hear what we just talked about this morning, the voice of the Father, who says the very same sort of things he said to his own son, Jesus. Remember? He spoke very simply, the same. This is my son. He's doing pretty good, eh? Sometimes God goes to Canada. That affirmation, confirmation, validation. Now, what do we do? Let's begin to address this. We're going to spend this afternoon addressing how does one pray through this stuff. It's called a, a healing prayer model. We'll walk you through this. But before we go, I want to do two things with you. Many of you have uh, either a phone or a pen and paper or something in front of you. You're quite the note takers. Uh, just push pause for a minute. I gave you a couple of analogies. Let's go back to the closet one if you can. It's the narrative. It's the story of your life. Is there anything still in the closet that you don't want to take a look at that needs to be pulled out? A story? A memory, a relationship, a value judgment. We said there's always either a phrase, a look, or a sound growing up. At events like this, we have people, just the last one was an 83-year-old woman who said long before abortions were legal, I had one, never told anyone. She was 16, she's now 83. She said, I've carried this secret my whole life. It's almost ruined my life. We can say that's really sad and go, hon, you've got a few good years. Let's enjoy these. Just take time. Is there anything there? Ask, since you're getting good at hearing the voice, Ask, is there anything I'm unaware of or is there something I need to face and stare down? Anything in that closet that's hiding away there that it's affecting your life, your soul? Anything? Write it down. We're not necessarily going to tell anybody these unless they need to. They need to be brought in the light we will. Is there anything there? Let's take a few moments. Okay, second response. If you're one who can identify the whole in the soul, 
that's not quite filled up the way you'd like it to be or healed, can you identify how big is the hole? Is this an annoying hole? It's just frustrating, annoying. If you can assign a label to it, it does help. If you can't, it's no big issue. Is this one more annoying? Is this one more nagging? Is this one more gnawing? How big is the hole in the soul? Is it just a dot in your life that you have to think about? Is it a bit more like a, a hole? The analogy or comparison that we created was, is this like a roundabout? Or is this like a big hole in the middle of your soul that you go, no matter how much I try, it just comes back. Take a moment, prayerfully ask, I want to, I want to address it, I want to face it. How big is it? And what is it? And just before we go, we will be together about another 23 hours. So let's just ask, what's the one thing that especially as we address this hole in the soul stuff, what's the one thing you want to ask the father of your soul for in the next 23 hours? This is the Christmas season, but this is not like Santa where you ask. It requires a partnership. He's very willing to do his part, but as you know, you have to do yours. So what do you want to ask him for? Well, just a couple of coaching points. For some of you, it will be to hear his direct voice like you never have before. By the way, both testaments, people got new names. And for some of you, the name you had was said by someone with such disdain. It's been hard to hear your voice, your name, with a voice that has validation to it. For some of you, clearly, it's going to be that affirmation, confirmation, validation. You won't just feel it. You'll sense it, hear it, know it. It's an experiential piece. I texted Nate a few days ago and said, as I pray for this weekend, it feels like God wants people to encounter and experience him. This is not a belief thing. It's not a faith thing. It's an encounter and an experiential peace. My sense is God is the father of your heart and soul, wants to use your senses, the human side, see, sense, hear, feel, experience. Most of you won't write this down, so let me offer it as a suggestion. It's very possible that in the next 23 hours, he wants to put you in a position of receiving like you've never received before. He has no interest in fixing you. Please get that. He wants to welcome you and transform, but it requires you to be trusting. One final story, youngest daughter. It was the last year of high school, and she said one day, Dad, I know you read very widely, but I know you don't read Seventeen magazine every month.
I said, you're right, I don't read it every month. <clears throat> and she said, if I give you uh, 17, will you read it? I said, of course, you're asking me. So she gave me 17 magazine. She had one article marked and highlighted it. She wanted to make sure I didn't miss it. And the title of the article was, uh, How to Affirm Your Teenage Daughter. And I went, I thought I was pretty good at this. Like, I, I give seminars in this. I write on this. I mean, I, 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 th I thought I was good. And I read it, and I figured out quickly what she wanted me to get. I said, the greatest weakness the average family and parent makes in trying to affirm or validate their daughter is it's too general. It's not specific enough. And they never update. Too general and don't update. I went to her and said, I get it. She goes, Dad, I love how much you love me. She goes, I feel fortunate. But I'm 17 now. I'm going to be at university next year. You say the same things to me you did when I was eight and nine. You tell me how much you love me. You tell me I could do anything. You tell me you believe me. You tell me all that stuff. She goes, I got it. You've done a good job. I get it. She goes, update, Dad. And then she used my own words against me. She goes, Dad, I need you to become a student of my life. <laughs> Cheeky little rascal. Here's why I tell you that. God, your father, your father, wants to get you in a position where he can be the student of your life who speaks, directs, validates, moves you ahead. He's not interested in fixing you. He's interested in strengthening you. And for women, it's to come along in a nurturing way. And for men, he'll probably punch you in the peck and go, it's time to be a man, and I will get you there. I will get you there. You gotta walk with me. Make sense? Just put your hands out. I'm gonna pray for you. I'm hungry. Come on. Look up, don't look down. Come on. For some reason, the God alone knows. He wants you. Don't miss it. He knows you, He knows your name. And he wants you. Now forget what you've learned before. You need a bigger or a deeper or better commitment. There's no commitments today. He just wants you. He wants you to be with him. He wants to change you from the inside out. He wants to fill the hole in your soul. And somewhere between punch your peck or pat your bum or whatever the image you have and then somehow bring a healing to that soul that gives you a strength and a hope and a courage you did not have. We're in that partnership together, that divine partnership. Your human spirit, his Holy Spirit. Let's do this. We're only partway there. He's going to take us home. Now, he's going to bless you in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But until then, let's go eat lunch. Amen.